In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. What's the point of a sermon? What are we trying to do here? I had an extended conversation a few weeks ago with a friend sorting out this very topic. If the goal of these next 15 minutes, spoiler alert, about 15 minutes here, if the goal is simply to educate, teach some ideas about the text, then this is actually a very poor format. There's no dialogue, no room for questions. Educationally speaking, you, the congregation, have no chance for transference to understand, process, and articulate the concepts I'm speaking in your own words. Well, I see sermons as less of an opportunity for education and more for exhortation. There's a persuasive element here, trying to take what we've heard from scripture and go beyond a, huh, that's interesting, into a go forth and do, not just with a to-do list, but to internalize what we've heard and hopefully go out to think, act, and live differently. The word read and preached and the sacrament received are what equip us to follow through on the final exhortation of our service when the deacon dismisses us to go out in, into the world rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit. All that being said, in preparing this week, I found that today's texts are, for me, much easier to respond to with new ideas but an unchanged heart. But my hope this morning is to take these reflections and instructions that we heard on the nature of Jew and Gentile, insider and outsider, and walk away with more than just some interesting concepts. To start, our reading from Isaiah comes at a transition point in the book into what some call Third Isaiah. It's the final section that speaks to the return of the people of Israel from exile, giving them hope in God's goodness, both in their near-term future as well as an ultimate picture of what the kingdom of God would look like. Its original readers were a people who were oppressed and captive, ready to return to the land promised to them. They were looking for identity as they reconstituted as a nation. And into that hope and expectation, we read this passage about the inclusion of eunuchs and foreigners. Eunuchs here might be those who served on the king's staff in Babylon and so were intentionally and permanently kept from ever having children with the women of court or anyone else. They would be without hope when it came to returning and having descendants. Who would keep their family line going? And foreigners were not even in the line of Abraham in the first place. They were not inheritors of the promise made to be blessed and multiplied. Maybe they would ask themselves, were we really invited to receive from God? Both of these groups were limited in their participation in worship in Deuteronomy. It's to these groups who have no reason for hope that Isaiah writes these words of encouragement. Now, while scripture is routinely on the side of the poor and marginalized without condition, in this passage, there is a requirement set up for these people. It's the eunuchs who keep the Sabbath and hold fast to the covenant who receive the encouraging message. Keeping the Sabbath here is a placeholder for following the whole law. For those who would acknowledge Yahweh as Lord over all days, willing to pattern their whole lives around the covenant. It's an interesting placeholder for the whole law, and as an aside, it might behoove us, especially in a season when work and rest have very strange rhythms, to really reflect on the importance and value of Sabbath-keeping and rest. In any case, these folks hear the good news that they are going to be gathered in along with the remnant of Israel. As God is promising to bring his covenant people back to his holy mountain, Isaiah says that God's house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. 
Thus says the Lord who gathers the outcasts of Israel, I will gather others to them besides those already gathered. Those who don't belong get to be grafted in. The foreigner who does not initially belong gets to join in with God's people. And the one who does not have children gets to have something better than sons or daughters, an everlasting name that will never be cut off. This is not just a concession on God's part. God cares so much about this inclusion. This is so important to him that when money changers move in and usurp the area of the temple dedicated for these outsiders to pray in, the court of the Gentiles, Jesus responds by making a whip and violently casting them out. We can't necessarily use this to say definitively that God cares more about this issue than other issues, but I can't help find myself comparing all the other offenses that Jesus witnessed and the ones committed to him and see that this is the one that prompted the most aggressive response. It certainly matters to God. So Isaiah invites Israel to hear about how God is gathering in non-Israelites to himself, expanding their vision of God's people to include Gentiles. Paul's letter to the Romans, on the other hand, is addressing the opposite problem, early Christian anti-Semitism. Around this time, Jews were returning to Rome and were generally disliked and distrusted by the Roman people. And so the Christian church that was established there had the reverse problem of Isaiah's audience. Here we have Gentile Christians who were tempted to think of themselves as replacements for, instead of additions to, the Jews in the eyes of Yahweh, looking down on the second-class Jewish citizens and brothers and sisters as inferior. And we know that this problem wasn't permanently fixed by Paul's letter to this church. At first, in the first few decades of the early church, Christians worked to avoid Roman persecution by identifying as an extension of Judaism because it was a legally permissible religion within the Roman Empire. But soon enough, Christians worked hard to distinguish themselves from the Jews, often in ways that were demeaning or derisive. There is a very lamentable thread of anti-Semitism woven throughout Christian history in particular and Western history in general all the way up until this very day when anti-Semitic hate crimes are on the rise and famous athletes post conspiracy theories on social media about the Jewish cabal that runs human trafficking rings. The problem is still very much with us. So how should the Gentile Christians in Rome have responded? Paul reminds them and us that all non-Israelites are getting grafted into a Jewish family. When we read about insiders and outsiders in the Bible, I, white American male that I am, tend to immediately identify with the insiders and think about how I can look to include outsiders. Now it's true, sociologically speaking, in the 21st century, white male privilege is a reality that I ought to think about and wonder how I should respond to. But theologically speaking, I'm an outsider inheriting someone else's project and promises. Paul reminds the Gentile Romans that it's not you that support the root, but the root that supports you. It is Israel's Messiah to whom they and we owe our allegiance. And while some of the Israelites were not faithful, God used their rejection to fulfill the promises made to their ancestor Abraham to bless the whole world. Paul in this chapter paints a picture of the glory of God who uses the responses of humanity, frail and broken as they are, to still accomplish his desire to draw all peoples to himself, Jew and Gentile alike. Paul uses the metaphor of an olive tree, 
Grafting in wild branches into cultivated trees allows the sap from the healthy tree to reinvigorate the dying one, and both are then strengthened. Now, you can get too far into the weeds, if you'll pardon the pun, if you take this horticultural metaphor too far or assume that Paul was an expert arborist and he's sort of in his tree knowledge wheelhouse. But the point still stands that in both of the readings so far, you who think so much of yourself, you who consider yourself the insider, recognize that God has a plan for those outsiders as well. Do not presume too much of what God has done for you. Be grateful to God, open to others different as they may be. Paul says, stand in awe. And to the outsiders, you are welcome. To help remind us of our second-class status as Gentiles, we might turn to our gospel passage this morning. This is quite possibly one of the least comfortable gospel passages to read or preach on. Let's sit for a moment in that discomfort. Matthew chooses not to identify the woman as a Syrophoenician woman, as Mark does, but as a Canaanite woman, reminding us of the people that Joshua and the people of Israel were meant to expel from the promised land. Matthew's Jewish audience would understand her status as one who not only didn't belong, was, but was supposed to be kept out. And then the disciples hear her cries and tell Jesus to send her away. But their request to send her away might have been asking Jesus to heal her daughter. Because Jesus doesn't reply with, yes, I'll send her away. He replies in the negative. I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. It's kind of uncomfortable. We haven't even gotten into the dog metaphor that he uses. Now, there are mediating factors that might help us untangle what's going on in this exchange. First, Jesus had geographically left Israel. He had gone into her territory, perhaps suggesting more openness to heal non-Israelites than it might seem at first glance. In fact, Jesus had already praised the faith of the centurion and healed his servant, a different kind of occupier of the Jewish promised land. And at the end of this exchange, he commends her faith as well, healing her daughter. Even though Jesus replies with the narrow focus of his mission as Israel's Messiah, the future vision that we read about in Isaiah breaks through all over his ministry. From the cleansing of the temple to the healing of the garrison demoniac on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, when he casts out the legion of demons into the pigs, to his encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well, we know that Jesus doesn't outright refuse the Gentiles who come to him and often praises their faith. We know that Jesus' mission will ultimately send his disciples out far beyond those lost sheep of Israel, out to the ends of the earth. And so this woman approaches him, boldly breaking through the waiting period, looking to claim that future reality. It strikes me that I always read this passage and try to figure out what Jesus is up to. But I think the call for us is to see what this woman is up to. After all, it's her faith that's commended. It's her perseverance, her boldness in claiming who she knows Jesus to be. That's what Jesus marvels at. And it's that same kind of perseverance that Isaiah commends to the eunuchs and the foreigners. The God who gathers his people in wants to gather you as well. Isaiah's call to maintain justice at the beginning of our reading this morning isn't meant to earn God's favor, but to do so in response to the fact that God's deliverance is coming. The perseverance we show is not a matter of ushering in God's kingdom ourselves. It is holding fast to the promise that God will bring in his kingdom. He is going to do this. He is a God who heals and loves. And so in response, we ought to do what is right, 
maintain justice. It is to prepare for Yahweh's coming. The Canaanite woman shows her faith by naming Jesus' identity, the son of David, and appealing to that identity when asking for her daughter's healing. And it struck me this morning, it is her words about, about gathering up the crumbs from under the table that we use in the prayer of humble access before receiving communion. And we do the same thing that she did. We say, we're not worthy to gather up the crumbs from under your table, but you are the same God whose character or whose nature is always to have mercy. We have adopted her posture in our pre-communion prayers in saying, God, you are the God who has mercy. So even though we feel unworthy, we know who you are. And so we come to your table anyways. So what is the so what of these passages? Well, I'm walking away this morning with two things, and they even both start with the same letter. It's almost like I planned it. Presumption and perseverance. When I find myself presuming my own status, when I find myself believing my own hype or trusting in my status as an insider, I'm prompted this morning to look beyond and see the others that God has called, those whom I might not expect, those whom I might think belong outside, those who seem like impossible to come in. I recognize God's invitation for grace and healing is broader than my own. He has and will continue to gather others as well. And when I feel on the opposite end of the spectrum, when I feel as if I am on the outside, if I'm unable or unworthy to receive from God, I look to persevere, to hear the promises of the extent of God's love, promises that the kingdom of God is breaking in even now. I don't persevere in order to strong arm God into doing what I want, but I persevere in faith because of who God is, the one who saves, the one who heals, the one who might even heal me. This week I was on a conference call where Todd Hunter, who's the bishop of the ACNA diocese called Churches for the Sake of Others, he was offering some encouragement to some youth ministers and he told us to think great things about God. Maybe that's the way to sum up this sermon. God is a great God who loves more than we love, and is more merciful than we are. He's a great God who can and will do more than we ask or imagine. It is that greatness that we appeal to when we feel at the end of our ropes or on the outside. Like that Canaanite woman, when it seems like he's either distant or uncaring, we reach out and claim his goodness and perseverance, knowing and trusting that he desires to bring us in and comfort us. And when we feel confident and secure in his love, may our eyes be open to the others that he is bringing in, those outsiders who seem like they don't have any hope. May we recognize that what we have from him is a gift, stand in awe, and find ourselves growing in our desire for others to receive that gift as well. All looking forward to this promise. Thus says the Lord, maintain justice and do what is right, for soon my salvation will come and my deliverance will be revealed. Amen.